0: Everyone else, if you would take your Bible and turn to the book of Titus. Titus chapter one. It's over toward the end of the New Testament. We're gonna continue in this study that will take us through, through at least the end of April looking at this book, uh, this letter that Paul wrote to Titus. If you received a bulletin as you came in this morning on the front of that, well, on the back of that bulletin are some sermon notes that you can use to follow along during this time of Bible study. On the front of the bulletin, you see Welcome Mid America Baseball Team. Now, you might be looking around saying, Where exactly is that baseball team? Well, they got caught in a weather delay yesterday with some of their games they were playing down in Waxahachie, Texas, and got caught up. And so their series down there in Texas went through today. We were going to host them this morning in worship, and they were going to eat lunch with them, with with us, but they got held up, and so because you give, because of your faithfulness, one of the things that we're able to do this week is we're ministering to that Mid-America Christian University baseball team. They stay at school during spring break, but the cafeteria isn't available most of the time, and so as a church family, we're feeding those guys uh, several times this this week. Their coach there at Mid-America it's a member up at Henderson Hills Baptist Church in Edmond, and he's a part of a ministry called Ambassadors Baseball. You'll hear some more about Ambassadors if you haven't heard about it before, but Ambassadors, they go around during the summer, they play baseball tournaments, they share their faith when they go to these tournaments and are part of these baseball clinics, and we're going to support a couple of those baseball clinics this, this summer, so we have that going. Also, want you to know that we were able to give some financial support to One of the churches in New Orleans East that was hit by that tornado a couple of weeks ago, uh, we had extra finances come in during December that put us over budget to have some extra money available. And so we were able to send some of that money to that suburban Baptist church in New Orleans East. I've actually, am friends with the, uh, I say friends, that might be a stretch of the word friend, but I'm a good acquaintance with the guy who's the pastor there, and I've been in that church before, and we were able to minister to them. And also, we sent our shower trailer to Northwest Oklahoma this past week up to Laverne. If you heard about the fires that were happening in Northwest Oklahoma, we were able to send our shower trailer up there to be involved in ministry. So. I can't say it again, but I uh, can't say it enough, but thanks again for, for being a church that gives and ministers and reaches out to people. All right, so Mid-America's not here, but you're here, and I love you. So we are going to study God's Word together. I'm just going to throw out all my baseball illustrations and come back to those another day, so All right, Titus chapter one. Let's start out in verse one. Paul. A bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. For the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Then in verse 3. But at the proper time, God manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Verse four, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Then let's read down into verse five there. For this reason I left you in Crete that you would set in order what remains. And appoint elders in every city as I direct you. May God bless the reading of His word. As we continue our study in the book of Titus, you'll notice I mentioned earlier that Titus comes toward the end of your New Testament. In the New Testament, after you get past the Gospels and you get past the book of Acts, then you have a set of letters from a man named Paul. Those letters, and this can be confusing if you're coming back to the Bible after maybe a time away or you don't have a lot of experience with the Bible those letters that are written by Paul are not listed in chronological order. In other words, in your New Testament, they're not listed in the order in which they were written. It becomes confusing if you read them and you think you just wrote them one after another, but they're written to different areas, and primarily those letters are ordered according to length. You have Romans that starts out and it starts out as this highly doctrinal foundational letter that plays into Paul's missionary strategy and it forms this foundation. And then the letters go on from there. When you get to the end of his letters, they transition from being letters written to churches to letters written to individuals. So you have letters written to Timothy, the letter written to Titus, the letter written to Philemon. But even these letters that were written to individuals would have been read among the church. And when you hear about the New Testament letters read among the church, make sure you have the right picture in your mind. Not this type of gathering, not 500 or 600 people together, written and read to a church that was probably 30 or 40, meeting in an apartment building or meeting in a house. And so sometimes we hear these New Testament letters that have had so much impact in the world, and we think, man, they must have been received by thousands of people originally. No, tens, dozens, just small groupings, and yet through that influence, God's word has gone out generation after generation, place to place. And so these letters by Paul are written to these individuals at the end, Timothy, Titus, Philemon, they're read among a church so that it will impact the life of that church. When Paul wrote his letters, he would write them in a style that was very common for the ancient world. And an ancient letter doesn't follow the same pattern that a modern letter does. When we write our modern letter, we write, dear so-and-so, you write the body of the letter, and then you write sincerely or whatever conclusion you put, and then you write your name. Ancient letters, they put the author's name first. So that's why in the book of Titus, it begins with Paul. And then it provides a description of Paul. And so last week we looked at that description. Then after that, it would provide usually who it was written to, some sort of common blessing, and then it would get into the purpose of the letter. And so Paul's using a strategy for writing letters that's very common. Students, I know you guys uh, communicate a little bit differently now, but back in the day, if you were going to write a little note to a special someone, you would write it on a piece of paper, and then you would fold it up and stick it in their locker. I don't know if people still do that anymore, but... uh, The way that letter was written communicated a lot about what you wanted to communicate to that other person. You didn't send text messages, you folded them up and you wrote them and you put little letters on there or you gave them to a friend and a friend gave them to the other person and that's how the the message got passed on. But these are letters written in the style of the ancient world and so Paul is writing to Titus here to lay out a foundation. There's two things I want you to see this morning. We're gonna look at the recipient of the letter Titus and we're going to start to look at the purpose of the letter. And we're gonna talk about a gospel mentor and a gospel mission. So those are our two main ideas. When we talk about the recipient, we're talking about a gospel mentor. When we talk about the purpose, we're gonna talk about a gospel mission. God uses people and purposes. We have relationships and we have a direction that our life is taking us. Now when we get here to verse four and it says, to Titus, my true child, and a common faith. We have Paul writing to a man of faith who obviously he's invested in. He's writing to someone that he knows well. He's writing to someone he's speaking into his life. But when we, talk, when we call Paul Titus' mentor, I want to be very careful about my definition of mentor at this point. Um, mentor is a pretty trendy word right now. If you're involved in business or leadership, Uh, My generation and the generation coming behind me, we, contrary to popular belief, are begging for older adult mentors. Uh, This is kind of surprising to a lot of people. You hear about millennials and you hear about the generation coming after us that nobody knows exactly sure how to name them, but there's this idea that they've cut themselves off from older adults, when in fact that's exactly the opposite my generation and the generation after me is begging for older adults to speak into to our lives and so this idea of having a mentor is a very trendy idea and it's a very good new testament concept as long as we make an important transition when we talk about mentor this morning we're not just talking about mentor in a general sense. In other words, someone helping you learn to do a craft better, or someone helping you become a better dad or become a better husband. That's good, and there is a place for that, and there's a place that we're going to talk about how that fits in. But specifically, when we use mentor this morning, we're talking about disciple-maker. In other words, someone who's speaking into your life not just so you'll be better at work and not just so you'll be better at home, but so that you'll know what it is to fully follow Jesus Christ. Mentor is a good, common grace. It's a good, common gift of God that you have people speaking into your life. But what you really want is someone who's able to come along and say, yes, let me help you at work, and then let me tell you how your work relates to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Yes, let me help you become a better dad and husband, and let me let you know how being a dad and husband plays into being a fully devoted follower of Jesus. We need people that are speaking into our lives. Specifically, we need people who are speaking into our lives in such a way that we're able to understand that within the scope of the gospel. How do we go about following Jesus Christ? People who have been down that road before, who have been around the block before, who are able to tell us this is how you're able to do that. This is the analogy between, and I want to be really careful with the word here, so hear me out. This is the difference between being a parent and a gospel-centered parent. And I want to be so careful because that could come across the wrong way. There are so many parents who want to see their kids obey, want to see their kids go the right direction, want to see their kids do good things. But we realize that parenting is not primarily about raising nice kids who do good things. Parenting is about passing on the faith. Parenting is about investing in the next generation in such a way that they become fully devoted followers of Christ. So there's a good aspect of parenting that says, I wanna see my kids go the right direction. I wanna see them obey. I wanna see them grow up and be involved in things. And I want to see them do that in such a way that their hearts are fully given over to Christ. So when we talk about mentoring, we're talking about investing in someone else, but specifically investing in their life in such a way that they know what it is to follow Christ. So how does Paul do that with Titus here? Well, he uses two phrases. He uses a family phrase, and he uses an ethnic sort of phrase. The first phrase he says is, "...to Titus my true child." Some translations will say, my true son. So he's developing this family relationship. And these sort of family relationships are very common in, in the New Testament. And we still use them today. Brother so-and-so. Uh, brother's a great fill-in when you can't think of the person's name. <laughs> Hey brother, good to see you this morning, which is code for man, I really appreciate you, but I have no clue what your name is. Um, We use that type of language in the church. I grew up in a small little church where, and and David did this earlier during his prayer, and it it hits me in my heart in a really positive way, but you called the pastor brother so-and-so. Uh, I feel strange when people call me Brother Owen, but I know it's an endearing phrase. I know it's something they mean in a really really powerful way, but in Christ we're brothers and sisters, but Paul is also able to talk about himself as a father to Titus. And he uses this phrase in a couple of other places. I want you to see these because this helps us to kind of understand what's going on. In Philemon, which is the book right after this, in Philemon chapter 1, He's talking about, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Paul is able to talk about being the father of someone because he's able to talk about leading that person to faith in Christ. He became a spiritual father to that person. When he talks about Timothy, he says to Timothy, my true child in the faith, and if you want to read about Paul's introduction to Timothy and how that relationship got started, you can find that in the book of Acts. But Paul would talk about these men, about Timothy and Titus and Luke and John Mark and these others that he's invested in, and he talked to, to them a the way a father would to a child. Sometimes, sometimes as a supplemental father coming alongside and saying, let me speak into your life the way your father does, sometimes as almost a replacement father. And those are two different ways that a mentoring relationship can work. Sometimes you come into someone's life and they've grown up in a really strong situation. They have parents in the faith and you come along to support those parents because we know that our children will listen to person X a lot of times when they won't listen to us. And so you just need somebody else to come along and say the same thing you've been saying as a parent, just somebody else says it and your kids light up and like it all of a sudden makes sense. And so sometimes people come in and they provide that role. Sometimes there's no parent figure there. There's nobody able to play play that role, and so you step in and you provide that spiritual leadership, you provide that spiritual support for someone because there was never anybody there to provide it in the first place. And so Paul is able to speak about Titus the way a father would speak about a son. Um, Think about the value of having someone speaking into your life, to know there's someone who wants to see you develop, wants to see you grow, Uh, our high school baseball coach, one of the ways he would refer to us is he would always refer to us as men. Now, we were 16-year-olds who picked our nose and overthrew first base. We were not men. We We were barely on the way to being men, but there was something about him purposefully calling us men that you wanted to rise to the occasion. You wanted to be a man because here's a coach speaking in your life saying, you guys need to be men. For Paul to speak into Titus' life the way a father would into a son and say, hey, you're a man, and I want to help you grow as a man. You're becoming a woman of faith. I want to see you grow as a woman of faith. How do you do that? How do you become that person who speaks into someone's life? But then he uses another phrase. So he calls him a child, but look at the other phrase he uses. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith. The word there, the key word there, is the word common. When Paul refers to Timothy, he talks about his true child in the faith, but he doesn't use the word common. So why does he use the word common with Titus? Here's the reason. The reason he uses the word common is because Titus was not a Jew. Titus was a Gentile. And one of the things that Paul is having to deal with in this letters is this ongoing dispute between the Jews and the Gentiles. How Jewish do you have to be to be a follower of Jesus? And so when he speaks to Titus, he says, you're my true child in a common faith. In other words, we're in this together. Galatians 2.3 is this reference that even Titus, who was with, me, was with me, was not forced to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This is a major issue throughout Paul's ministry is how can Jews and Gentiles be one in Christ? Let me read you some scriptures that come from Ephesians chapter 2. If you're quick in your Bible and your phone and you want to turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, you can kind of get the big picture of what's going on here. But there's these verses from Ephesians chapter 2 that describe why Paul calls Titus his true child in a common faith. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 11, here's what it says. Therefore remember that at one time, this is Ephesians 2, 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. So he's creating this divide that was there between Jews and Gentiles. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then watch how he explains this relationship. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Then it goes on at the end of this passage, um, and it says, did I lose my spot there? That he might create in himself one new man and in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. This is one of the foundational passages of the New Testament for understanding how could Jews and Gentiles be one in Christ. It's because of the cross. It's because through Jesus Christ, he has broken down that dividing wall. And watch what Paul does. Because Paul is able to call Titus his son in the common faith, he's saying there is no division among us. We are in this together. And it's a powerful statement of the gospel. When someone who is older, has the authority, has the power, speaks about someone who is younger, but very different from them, and demonstrates that they are one in the faith, there's a beautiful picture of the gospel at that point. And so those of you who are in a position to speak into someone's life, those of you who are in a position to be a mentor, to be a disciple maker for someone, that person that you speak into may be very different from you. And in fact, it's good if they're very different from you because as you speak into their life, you're showing the gospel on display. We talk about how do we become a diverse church? How do we become a church that reflects the body of Christ? Well, part of it starts at the leadership level, but where a lot of it happens is just at the ground level where you say, you know what, I'm going to invest in people who aren't like me. I'm going to go out of my way to form powerful bonds, powerful relationships with people that probably I wouldn't have been expected to connect with, people that I wouldn't have nor- normally gravitated toward, but I'm going to speak into their life. So there's this bond that Paul has with Titus because of Christ. And that leads to the next phrase in Titus 4, or Titus chapter 1 verse 4. He says to Titus, my true child in a common faith Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. What Paul is doing here is he's saying this bond that we have comes because of this common blessing. At the beginning of these letters, you would have a blessing that would be given from one person to the other, from the person that was writing to the person receiving the letter. And the blessing here is grace and peace. This is still a great blessing to be able to speak over someone even today to say grace and peace because grace is God's power and God's gift that we don't earn. It's God's goodness being given to his people, but it's not that we've earned it, it's just he gives it in a loving way. And we know that that peace is that peace that we have with him through Jesus. So we're not trying to scramble to make ourselves right with God. We're not trying to force God to love us. We have peace with God, and because of that peace with God, we're able to have peace with others. And so one of the things, and don't miss this, what Paul is doing here. He's saying, Titus, I'm your father. We're in this together. I care about you. But I'm not able to give you what you truly need. That only comes from God. And so when you have someone in your life who's a mentor, when you have someone in your life who's a disciple maker, remember that that person is not your savior. That person is not your God. The blessing that Paul gives to Titus at this point is to say every good thing that you need in life has come from God. And the peace that you have with God has come through Jesus. It doesn't come through me. Because you form these relationships with people, and you put them on a pedestal, and they start to look like God, or they start to look like the Savior, and Paul doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants to be the father figure for Titus. He wants to be the mentor for Titus, but he doesn't want to be the God of Titus, and that's an important distinction that comes here, is do we know God's power in our life, and do we know what it is to have peace with God? And if we do know what it is to have God's power, and we do know what it is to have that peace, then it leads us to the second point, which is the mission. So you have a mentor giving a mission. And look how that happens in verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, For this reason, Titus, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Okay, before we actually get into to that mission, notice something important that Paul does here. Paul releases this purpose, this mission to Titus. So even though he's the mentor, even though he's the person speaking into Titus's life, he's not going to hold Titus' hand the whole time along here. He's going to say, Titus, I've invested in your life, you've got this mission, now go do it. That's the difference between parenting and overparenting, <laughs> or the difference between coaching and overcoaching. It's saying, I'm going to invest in your life, I'm going to do everything I can to prepare you for life, and then at some point, I'm going to kick you out and you've got to go do it. I'm going to be there for you." Those of you who have parented through the life transition years, those of you who have kicked kids out of your house and said, "Hey, go and do it. I'm still here for you. I love you. I'll continue to be involved in your life but you're on mission now. i prepared you and I've sent you out. Paul does the same thing. And what this does, what this protects us against, is if we're not careful, especially leaders in a church can start to say, I'm the only one that can do anything around here. I'm the only one that's ever capable of getting anything done. And that's a very dangerous place to be because you start to think of yourself more highly than you should. And Paul doesn't operate that way. He invests in people and then he says, go do it. our staff here at Emmaus is reading a book called Essentialism, and they're going to hate me for mentioning this probably because uh, we keep talking about this book, but if you're involved in business or you're involved in leadership of some kind, it's an interesting book. This book Essentialism, the idea in the book is learn to say no to almost everything so you can say yes to what really matters. That's the general idea. Because most of us are prone to say yes to just about everything that comes our way, and before we know it, we're completely overloaded, we can't do anything well, and we've put ourselves in a situation that we're never going to be able to succeed. The premise behind this is, do what God's created you to do, and then let other people do the rest. Let them do those things. And Paul is setting an example for how this works. He's saying... I'm going to invest in Titus. I'm going to send him out, and then I'm going to the next place to keep doing this because I'm not God. I'm not called to do everything. I can't do everything. You go do it. I'm going to invest in you so I can put you on mission. What does that mission look like? The mission looks like that you would set in order what remains. This is going to be such good news for those of you who hang your clothes up by color um, and those of you who love for everything to be in order and you lay something out and it all needs to sit in the, in the right place, this idea of set in order is not a complete New Testament approval of OCD, but it gets pretty close. Um, it's a word that literally means to set things in a row or to set things in proper place. Be freed, if that's, if that's you. Know that that's a good thing. Even the creation account in Genesis 1 is God taking chaos and putting it into order. The New Testament church was prone to disorder, and Paul came along and gave order to it. And what you start to see happening is this tension between the order people and the free spirits. Now, you don't know anything about this tension, I'm sure, in your own life, but... Uh, but it existed in, in the early church. And you have some authors that came along in the 19th century and 20th century, a man named Bauer, BAUR. Bauer started putting forward these ideas of early genuine Christianity with Jesus. And then Paul came along. And he kind of created his own brand of Christianity, his own brand of church, where he started to impose order on this free spirit idea, and he started to mess up genuine Christianity. That tension is still with us. We still face this battle between how much order should there be, and how much flexibility should there be. How much do you come along and say, this is how we're gonna do things, and how much do you leave it up to the spirit? You remember a couple of months ago, we had that battle between word and spirit, this is the same idea, kind of working itself out. Order and freedom. In reality, you need both. Paul doesn't want to see these Christians just fledgling, just out there on their own, living with no structure, living with no order. So he sends Titus to bring order, to things, set things to be right in these churches. But here's the key. If I've lost you on that last part, here's the key. The key is not order to restrict the people, but order that provides freedom for them to do what God's called them to do. True order in a church, true order in a ministry shouldn't stop the ministry, it should propel it ahead. The reason Paul comes and establishes these gospel churches is not to stop the spread of the gospel, it's to continue the spread of the gospel. And so when we see this idea of Paul in his ministry, He doesn't come and just preach the gospel and move to the next place and say, I hope it goes well with you. Now you're a follower of Jesus. You're going to be okay. He proclaims the gospel, and then he wants to see churches planted there. And we need that same thing today. When evangelists go out, when missionaries go out, they proclaim the gospel, and then they don't just want to count heads and move to the next place. They want to see a church grow up there, not to stop the work, but to continue the work. And then those churches grow up, and they plant other churches. That then they have order, and they plant other churches, and you see this process continuing on. Because, because if we're not careful, the longer you sit in the order of a church, the more that that freedom and the desire to see the gospel forward go forward can stop. This is the reason that we have church planting. Efforts is because generally speaking, not always, generally speaking, new churches reach more people with the gospel than established churches do. Why? Because established churches are just that, they're established. And if we're not careful, we get so worried about our establishment and our order and our structure and how we do things that we lose that drive to reach people. And so in the New Testament, you've always got this battle between order, establishing order and continuing the mission. And let's look just for a minute at that mission, and we're going to wrap up with this. So you have the mission of local church order, and then look at that next phrase in in verse 5. That you would set in order what remains, and how would you do that? You would appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Now we're gonna spend next Sunday looking specifically at this topic of elders and the way that it continues down through verse nine. So I'm just gonna introduce it this morning and then we're gonna look in depth at this topic next week. But what Paul is doing here is is, we're gonna have this mission to establish local church order and then we're gonna have local church health and growth. How's that gonna happen? It's gonna happen when these elders, when these leaders are put in place. Not to do all the work, not to do all the ministry, but to see it move ahead. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two is an important point here. Second Timothy chapter two verse two, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Second Timothy two, two. Paul says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. He's establishing elders. He's sending out Titus to establish elders, not so the process will stop with them, so that they'll be the people that move the process even further forward. That they'll care for the church, they'll lead the church, they'll protect the church, and they'll send the message forward. I want to wrap up with these verses. Ephesians chapter 4. If you can get to the book of Ephesians, it's going to be left of Titus. If you're reading out of a hard copy version of the Bible, if you turn back to the left a little bit, to the book of Ephesians chapter 4, if you're on your phone, you can probably find it out of the menu just below Titus on, on your phone. Ephesians chapter 4 talks about Paul's plan, or well not Paul's plan, God's plan to establish leadership in these, in these local churches and the way that having order having elders in these churches would lead to health and would lead to growth. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastor teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So why do you have leadership in the church? Not to do all the work, but to equip people so that they are able to live out who God's created them to be. To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Saints there is not super Christian. Saints is all believers, all Christians there. For the building up of the body of Christ. And then there's several verses in between, but when you get to verse 16, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that, build, that, that it builds itself up in love. There are a lot of conversations that happen, and I think these are important conversations, but there's a lot of conversations that happen about church growth. Should a church grow? How should a church grow? What does that look like? What Ephesians 4 tells us is that when a church is healthy, growth will happen, both personal spiritual growth and numerical growth. We don't manufacture it we don't make it happen, but when there's godly leadership seeking not to do all the work, but to encourage and equip others to do what God's called them to do, and when people are working together within that local body of believers saying, you know what, I wanna be involved, I wanna see people reached, I don't wanna just see us sit here and be established, when that happens and there's love and there's community, the body will grow. We'll grow stronger together and we'll grow in what God has called us to do. How does that growth happen? It happens through relationships, and it happens through people being on mission. It happens through mentors and mission. So here's my question for you as we wrap up. Who, and remember we're using the word mentor in a very specific way right here, but who is mentoring you? Who is speaking into your life? Who's investing in your life? And who are you mentoring? Who are you speaking into their life? Parents, grandparents, obviously you have an easy, straightforward answer right there with your kids and your grandkids and your family. but, but, But beyond that, who are you speaking into? Who can you say, this is my true child in the common faith? You're preparing them. Let me set you free on something. Sometimes people are scared away from mentor or being a disciple maker or being that type of leader because you think, I don't want to sign on for a lifelong commitment. (laughs) I don't know this person. I don't have time for anything else in my life right now. I don't have time to be a mentor. I don't know what you mean by disciple maker, but I know I don't have time to do that either. I just don't have time to add anything else to my plate. Try not to think about this as adding something else to your plate. Try to think about this as intentionality in relationships. God has given you relationships. He's placed you around people. He's given you a circle of influence. By his grace, he's placed you to sit in certain places in this building. There are people around you that you can speak words of encouragement into their life. Being a mentor doesn't mean you're making a 50-year commitment to meet five hours a week. We don't, what's the old phrase like, ain't nobody got time for that? Ain't nobody got time for that. Um, That's not what we're calling you to do. What I am calling you to do is say, who has God placed in your life, and how am I investing in them? Specifically, how am I investing in them so that they'll be set free to live out the mission that God has called them to live? Which we all have to ask ourselves. Am I living on mission through the calling of the local church. Not to build up the church as an institution, but to be a part of the people of God as the kingdom of God is built, as the gospel goes forward. So that's what I want to leave you with. That's, that's what the foundation of this is. If I know the grace of God, if I know the peace that I have with God through Jesus, if I have that foundation, who am I mentoring, and how, how am I on mission? Who am I mentoring and how am I on mission to see God build his church, to see God build his kingdom through us? Let me pray for you and then we're gonna have a chance to sing together and this is a chance for you to think about those things and say, God, what are you calling me to do? How are you calling me to invest my life? Father, thank you for this letter that we have from Paul to Titus. Father, thank you for the example that we see in the New Testament with Paul someone who you gave this mission to, you gave this calling to, and he continued throughout his life to live with intentionality, to live with purpose, to invest in relationships with people who would then turn around and invest in others. And God, thank you for this church family. Thank you that there are grandparents and great-grandparents here today who have seen three and four generations of faith in their family, who have seen that passed on time after time. And God, I pray that that would be true of us. God, I thank you for the teenagers who are here to be mentors, to be disciple makers with my kids. God, thank you for the families and the couples that speak into my marriage and my life. God, help us to live on purpose, and to live on purpose for your mission, and to do that together as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.